Chapter 16 By the master, Fitch breathed, standing just inside the doorway. Beyond was a short hallway that turned right, running a short distance into the room itself. The hallway was filled with broken rhythmic drawings, circle upon circle of warding, dozens of lines of forbiddance. Joel looked on, amazed by the sheer amount of chalk on the floor. This looks like a battlefield, Harding said from the doorway. I've seen it before. Not with chalk, of course. With men. Joel looked at him. What do you mean? It's easy to see, Harding said, pointing. The Callaway boy drew an initial circle near the doorway, then blocked off the sides with lines so he couldn't get surrounded. When his front was breached, he abandoned that circle, drawing another one behind it, like an army slowly retreating on a battlefield. He was good, Joel said. Those defenses are intricate. Yes, Fitch said. I never had Charles in my class, but I heard much of him. He was supposed to be something of a troublemaker, but his skill was unrivaled. The three kidnapped students had that in common, Joel said. They were the best arithmetic students in the school. He stepped forward. He could walk over the lines of warding that formed the circles, though the lines of forbiddance at the sides would block him if he tried to go through them. Please try not to step on any of the chalk, Fitch said, getting out rolls of paper and settling down to make sketches of each of the defensive lines. Don't disturb anything. Joel nodded. There were a lot of small lines and dots that, when he looked closely, he could tell were the remnants of chalklings that had been destroyed. Inspector Harding motioned for his officers to remain outside the room, then edged around Fitch and carefully picked his way through the hallway with Joel. There, Harding said, pointing to the last circle in the line. Blood. Indeed there was. Just a few drops, like at the other scenes. Joel rounded the defense and whistled softly, squatting down. What? Harding asked. Shove defense, Joel said. A nine-pointer. He got it right on, too. He reached over, picking up a slip of paper that lay discarded near the circle. It detailed the shove defense. Joel held it up for the inspector. Cheat sheet. Even with the pattern, it's hard to do a nine-pointer. Poor lad. Harding said, taking off his round policeman's hat and tucking it under his arm in respect. He looked back past the line of seven circles leading out of the room. He put up one dusting good fight. Real trooper. Joel nodded, glancing at those drops of blood. Again, there was no body. Like at the other scenes, everyone assumed the students were being kidnapped, but... How did they get him out? Joel asked. The others looked at him. We had to go through a line of forbiddance at the doorway, Joel said. If they're kidnapping the arithmetists, how did they get him out of the room? They must have redrawn the line, Harding said, scratching at his chin. But it had holes in it as if attacked. So they redrew it, then attacked it again? But why would they do that? To cover up taking the boy? Why bother? We're obviously going to know he was kidnapped. None of them had an answer to that. 
Joel studied the defenses for a moment, then frowned, leaning closer to the broken, ripped shelf defense. Professor Fitch, you should look at this. What is it? A drawing, Joel said. On the floor. Not arithmetic pattern. A picture. It was done in chalk, but it looked like a charcoal drawing someone would do in art class. It was hastily done, more a silhouette than a real drawing. It depicted a man wearing a bowler hat and holding a long, oversized cane to his side, tipped down against the ground. The man's head seemed too big, and there was a large, undrawn section on the face, like a gaping open mouth. It was smiling. Beneath the picture were a few short, hastily written paragraphs. I can't see his eyes. He draws in scribbles. Nothing he does keeps its shape. The chalklings are distorted, and there seem to be hundreds of them. I destroy them, and they return to life. I block them, and they dig through. I scream for help, but nobody comes. He just stands there, watching with those dark, unseen eyes of his. The chalklings aren't like any I've seen. They writhe and contort, never keeping a single shape. I can't fight them. Tell my father that I'm sorry for being such a bad son. I love him. I really do. Joel shivered, all three of them silent as they read Charles Calloway's final words. Fitch knelt and drew a chalkling on the ground, then used it to check the sketch, just in case it was arithmetic. The chalkling just walked over the picture, ignoring it. Fitch dismissed the chalkling. These paragraphs make little sense, Fitch said. Chalklings that return to life after they're destroyed? Rhythmatic shapes that don't hold their forms? I've seen such things, Harding said. He looked up and met Fitch's eyes. At Nebraska. But this is so far from there, Fitch said. I don't think we can deny it any longer, Professor, Harding said, rising. Something has escaped the tower. It got here somehow. But it's a man who is doing this, Fitch said, hands shaking as he tapped the drawing Charles had done. That's no forgotten shadow, Harding. It's in the shape of a person. As Joel listened, he realized something. There was a whole lot more going on at Nebraska than people knew. What is a forgotten? Joel asked. Both turned to him, then grew quiet. Never mind that, soldier, Harding said. You're a great help here, but I'm afraid I don't have clearance to tell you about Nebraska. Fitch looked uncomfortable, and suddenly Joel knew what Melody felt like being excluded. He wasn't surprised, though. The details of what happened at Nebraska were kept nearly as quiet as the secrets of complex arithmetics. Most people were actually fine with that. The battlefield was a long way away, out in the central aisles. People were content to ignore Nebraska. The fighting had been pretty much constant since the days of King Gregory, and it wouldn't ever go away. Occasionally there were deaths— but they were infrequent and were always either rhythmatists or professional soldiers, easily ignored by the general public. Unless something managed to get out. Joel shivered. 
Something strange is happening, even by Nebraska standards, he thought, studying Harding and Fitch. Harding had spent over a decade on the battlefront, and he seemed dumbfounded by what was occurring. Eventually, Harding returned to inspecting the room, and Fitch returned to his drawing. Joel knelt, reading the paragraphs one last time. He draws in scribbles. With some persuasion, Joel got Fitch to let him help do sketch replicas of the defenses. Harding went outside to organize his men to search for other information, such as signs of forced entry. Joel drew quietly, using charcoal on the paper. Charcoal would have no arithmetic properties, even if drawn by arithmetist, but it approximated chalk fairly well. The trouble was, no sketch would exactly recreate the drawings on the floor, with all of their subtle scratch marks and broken lines. After Joel finished a few sheets, he walked over to Fitch, who was again studying the circle where Charles had made his final stand. Notice how he outlined the entire room in chalk, to keep the chalklings from crawling around his lines by going on the walls, Fitch said. Very clever. Have you noticed yet that the format of this attack reinforces our thoughts on the previous ones? Joel nodded. Lots of chalklings attacking in force. Yes, Fitch said. And we have some evidence now that this attacker, this scribbler, is probably a male which lets us narrow our results. Would you mind going out and making copies of those swirling patterns on the walls so that we have several versions done by different hands? I suspect that will help us be more accurate. Joel nodded, grabbing a roll of paper and some charcoal, then picking his way out. Most of the officers were down below now. Joel hesitated in the doorway, looking back into the room. Charles had blocked himself in just like Herman. He had even drawn lines of forbiddance around the window, and those lines showed signs of being attacked from the outside. Perhaps he had intended to climb out and had found his escape route blocked. He'd been out of options. Joel shivered, thinking of the hours Charles must have spent during the night, resisting the chalklings with defense after defense, trying desperately to survive until morning. Joel left the doorway and walked to the first of the two wall marks. This crime scene seemed to give more questions than it did answers. Joel put his paper up against the wall, then eyed the swirling pattern and began to do a sketch. It was... Something moved in the hallway. Joel spun, catching sight of it scuttling along the floor of the room, barely visible against the white carpet. A chuckling. Professor! Joel yelled, charging after the thing. Inspector Harding! The chalkling moved down the steps. Joel could barely see it against the white marble and lost sight of it once he reached the base of the stairs. He glanced about, shivering, imagining it crawling up his leg and gnawing at his skin. Joel? Fitch asked, appearing at the banister above. There, Joel thought, catching sight of a flash of white as the chalkling crossed the wooden doorway and moved down the steps outside. A chalkling, Professor, he yelled. I'm chasing it. Joel, don't be a fool. Joel. Joel was out the door, running after the chalkling. Some officers saw him immediately, and they charged over. Joel pointed at the chalkling, which was much easier to see now that it moved across grass, 
its lines conforming to the shape and contours of the blades, much as a shadow would look when it fell on an uneven surface. The police called for more backup, and Fitch appeared at the doorway of the building, looking puzzled. Joel kept running, barely keeping pace with the chalkling. The things were incredibly fast and completely tireless. It would outdistance him eventually. But for the moment, he and the police kept up. The chalkling reached the fence and shot underneath. Joel and the officers charged out the gate. The chalkling moved over to a large oak tree with thick branches, then, oddly, moved up the side of the trunk. It was then that Joel finally got a good look at the shape of the chalkling. He froze. A unicorn? Oh, no. The police officers piled around the base of the tree, looking up, lifting clockwork rifles. You, one called. Come down immediately. Joel walked up to them. Melody sat in the tree. He heard her sigh dramatically. Bad idea, she called down to him. You could say that, he replied. You will explain yourself, Harding said, standing with hands on hips. Melody grimaced, sitting in a chair in the mansion's kitchen, her white skirt dirtied from climbing the tree. To the side, one of the police officers meticulously wound the gears in his rifle. The clicking sounds rang in the small kitchen. Is that really necessary? Fitch asked, glancing at the gun. Please do not interrupt, Professor, Harding said. You may understand rhythmatic study, but I understand spies. I'm not a spy, Melody said. Then she paused. Well, okay, yeah, I'm a spy, but only for myself. And what interest do you have in this operation? Harding asked, placing his hands behind his back, walking in a slow circle around Melody. What did you have to do with the deaths? She shot a glance at Joel, and he could see that she finally seemed to be realizing just how much trouble she might be in. I didn't have anything to do with that. I'm just a student. You're arithmetist, Harding said. These crimes were committed by arithmetist. So, Melody said. There are a lot of arithmetists in the area. You have shown a persistent, undeniable interest in this investigation, Harding said. I'm curious, Melody said. Everybody else gets to hear what is going on. Why not me? No questions from you, Harding said. Do you realize that I have the power to imprison you until this investigation is over? Do you realize that now you are our prime suspect for having caused the murders? She paled. Inspector, Joel said, could I, uh, talk to you? Outside, maybe? Harding eyed Joel, then nodded. The two of them left by the side doors and went a little ways down where they could speak in private. We'll go back in a few minutes, Harding said. It'll be good for her to sweat a bit. Inspector, Joel said, Melody isn't behind the murders or the kidnappings, trust me. Yes, Harding said. I suspect that you're right, Joel. However, I have to pursue every lead. That young woman puts me on edge. Makes me suspicious. She puts a lot of us on edge, Joel said. But that doesn't mean she's the scribbler. I mean, it's obvious how she got here. She saw us leave Armidius, and everyone knows who it was that got kidnapped. 
I can vouch for her. Are you absolutely sure you know her, Joel? Harding asked. How can you be sure she's not fooling you? Part of me keeps worrying that the person behind this is hiding right in front of us, moving about our medius itself. It would be the best place for arithmetists to hide without looking suspicious. Like Nalazar, Joel thought. He left his rooms last night going somewhere in the night. But then how well did Joel know Melody? Could her silliness and friendship all be an act? Harding's suspicion got to Joel for just a moment. He realized he knew very little about Melody's past or why her family didn't seem to care about what happened to her. She was also genuine. She didn't hide her feelings. She belted them out, trumpeted them. She was straightforward with him. With everyone, it seemed. And, he realized, he liked that about her. No, Joel said. It's not her, Inspector. Well, a vote of faith from you means a lot, in my estimation. You'll let her go, then? After just a few more questions, Harding said, walking back toward the kitchen. Joel followed. All right, Harding said, entering. Joel has vouched for you, young lady, and that makes me more likely to listen to what you have to say. But you are still in serious trouble. Answer my questions, and perhaps I won't have to bring charges against you. She glanced at Joel. What questions? My men reported that you sent a chalkling all the way to the building, Harding said. How in the name of the master did you manage such a thing? She shrugged. I don't know. I just did. Dear, Fitch said, I know many of the most skilled arithmetists in the world. The string of glyphs you'd need to use in order to instruct a chalkling to cross that distance, climb the stairs, then go to the room? Why, that list would be incredible. I had no idea you had that kind of ability. What was the point? Harding asked. Why make a chuckling go all that way, then come back? Were you trying to get caught? Dusts, no, Melody said. I just wanted to know what was going on. And you expected a chuckling to tell you? She hesitated. No, she finally admitted. I just... Well, I lost control of it, all right. I made it to distract some of the soldiers. Joel frowned. She's lying, he thought, noticing how she looked down when she spoke. As he'd noted earlier, she was genuine, and her lie was easy to see. She's strangely good with chalklings, he thought. She wouldn't have lost control of that one. But... Did that mean that she did expect it to report to her on what it found? Chonklings couldn't talk. They were like springwork creatures. They didn't think beyond what they were told to do. Yet that unicorn chalkling had fled directly back to Melody. Chonklings do act very strangely sometimes, Inspector, Fitch said. Believe me, Harding said, I'm aware of this. I heard that excuse from arithmetists every week on the battlefield. I'm amazed you people can ever make them do anything, considering how often they simply go off in the wrong direction for no reason. Melody smiled wanly. You, young lady, are still suspicious, Harding said, pointing. Inspector, Fitch said, really, 
We now know from the drawing above that the scribbler is a man, or at least a woman dressed very convincingly as one. I doubt Melody could have managed that, and I'm certain there are those who can vouch for her location last night. Melody nodded eagerly. I have two roommates in my dormitory room. Beyond that, Inspector, Fitch said, raising a finger. The description we discovered in Charles's room indicated that the kidnapper's rhythmic lines act very oddly. I have seen Miss Bunz's lines, and they are quite normal. To be honest, they're often rather poorly drawn. Fine, Harding said. You may go, Miss Bunz, but I will be keeping an eye on you. She sighed in relief. Excellent, Fitch said, standing from his chair. I have more sketches to complete. Joel, would you walk Melody to the station? And, um, make certain she doesn't get into any more trouble along the way? Sure, Joel said. Harding went back to his work, though he did assign two officers to go with Joel and Melody, making certain she left the building. She went sullenly, Joel trailing along behind, and she gave the officers a world-class scowl once they reached the door. The police remained inside. Joel strolled along the lawn outside with Melody. That, she declared, was decidedly less than enjoyable. What did you expect? Joel asked, spying on a crime scene. They let you in, What's that supposed to mean? She looked up at the sky, then shook her head. I'm sorry, I just... Well, it's frustrating. It seems like every time I want to be involved in something, I'm told that's the one thing I can't do. I know how you feel. Anyway, Melody said, thanks for vouching for me. I think you kept that vulture from ripping me apart. He shrugged. No, really, she said. I'll make it up to you, I promise. I'm not sure if I want to know what that will entail. Oh, you'll enjoy it, she said, perking up. I've got an idea already. Which is? You have to wait, she said. No spoiling surprises. Great. A surprise from Melody. That would be wonderful. They neared the station but didn't enter, instead sticking to the comfortable shade of the trees as they waited for Fitch. Melody tried to get Joel to talk some more, but he found himself giving uninvolved answers. He kept thinking of that hurried picture with the frightened words beneath it. Charles Calloway had known he was going to die, yet he'd left notes on as much as he could figure out. It was noble. Probably more noble than anything Joel had ever done in his life. Someone needs to stop this, he thought, leaning back against a tree trunk. Something needs to be done. It wasn't just the students, not just Armedius, who were in danger. Ordinary people had been killed. And if what Fitch and Harding said was true, these kidnappings were threatening the stability of the United Isles themselves. It comes back to those strange chalk drawings, Joel thought. That looping pattern. If only I could remember where I saw it before. He shook his head and glanced at Melody. She was sitting on a patch of grass a short distance away. How did you do it? he asked. With that chalkling, I mean. 
I just lost control of it. He gave her a flat stare. What? she said. You're obviously lying, Melody. She groaned, flopping back on the grass, staring up at the trees. He figured she was probably going to ignore the question. I don't know how I do it, Joel, she said. Everyone in classrooms always talks about instructing the chalklings and about how they are completely without will themselves, like clockwork. But, well, I'm not really that good at the instructional glyphs. Then how do you make them obey so well? They just do, she said. I, well, I think they understand me and what I want of them. I explain what I want, then they go do it. You explain it? Yeah, little whispers. They seem to like it. And they can bring you information. She shrugged, which was an odd gesture, considering that she was lying down. They can't talk or anything, but the way they move around me, the things they do, well, yeah, sometimes I feel like I can understand what they mean. She rolled her head to the side, looking at him. I'm just imagining things, aren't I? I just want to be good with chalklings to make up for the fact that I'm bad with the other lines. I don't know. I'm the last person who could tell you about chalklings. As far as I'm concerned, they probably do listen to you. She seemed to find that comforting. She smiled, staring up at the sky until Professor Fitch arrived. Apparently Harding was going to stay at the mansion to investigate more. Joel found himself glad to be returning to Armidius. He hadn't eaten anything all day, and his stomach had begun to rumble. They walked into the station and climbed up onto the empty platform, waiting for the next train. This adds some very disturbing elements to our situation, Fitch said. Joel nodded. Wild chocklings, Fitch continued. Unknown rhythmic lines. I think that perhaps I shall need to have you begin helping me look through some of the more obscure rhythmic texts. There has to be mention of things like this somewhere in the records. Joel perked up, feeling a surge of excitement. Yet it was dulled by the realities of their situation. He glanced at Melody, who stood behind them, probably too far to hear. She obviously felt sheepish around Fitch, since she'd been caught spying. Troubled times, Fitch said, shaking his head as the track began to shake, a train approaching. Troubled times. A short time later, they were riding back across the waters and toward Armedius. Rhythmatics Diagram, Nine Point Circles Nine-point circles are the most complicated and difficult of rhythmatic circles to draw. Unlike the two, four, and six-point circles, the nine-point circle's points are not equidistant from one another. The points are actually relative to an imagined triangle within which the circle is drawn. For every non-obtuse triangle, one can draw a circle inside it which will pass through nine significant points. The midpoint of each side of the triangle leads us to three of the points. The altitude of each triangle vertex gives us the other six points, one at each altitude foot and one at each midpoint of the line segment between the vertex to the point where the three altitudes intersect. 
Many arithmetists never master drawing the nine-point, for if even one of the points is off, it can weaken the entire defense. Arithmetists who use nine-point circles generally practice over and over until they can intuit the locations of the points. Chapter 17 The first European encounters with wild chocklings are the subject of some debate, the book read. Joel sat with his back to the brick wall of Professor Fitch's office. The subject of some debate was a terrible understatement. So far, despite a week of studying, he hadn't been able to find two sources that agreed about when the first wild chocklings had been sighted. This is because of the poor record-keeping practices maintained by many who traveled westward across the oceans after initial contact was made between Aztec ships and the Old World. Though many of these early explorers, such as Jacques Cartier and the infamous Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, worked on the behalf of European nations, they truly sought personal fame or fortune. This was a time of expansionism and exploration. The American Isles presented an unknown landscape to conquer, control, and, hopefully, use. There were already rumblings of a war in Asia at this time, and the Joseon Empire was beginning to flex its muscles. Many an enterprising man realized that if he could get a foothold in the New World, he might be able to establish himself as independent, freed from the oppression— either perceived or actual, of his European masters. After being rebuffed by powerful South American empires, which had been galvanized by centuries of warfare and struggles against the Choklings, the explorers turned to the Isles. They were never told what dangers would await them. The Aztec nations were very xenophobic and reclusive during this era. The Tower of Nebraska is, of course, a central feature in early records. Of obviously ancient date, the tower was one of the wonders of the islands, as it was the only freestanding structure of apparent human design to be discovered there. Numerous explorers described the tower, yet these same explorers would swear that the next time they returned to Nebraska, the tower would be gone. They claimed that it moved about the island— never quite being in the same place as it was before. Obviously, these reports are to be taken with skepticism. After all, the tower now appears perfectly stable. Still, there are some legitimate oddities. The total lack of human life on the Isles should have been a clue that something was wrong in America. Someone built the Tower of Nebraska. Someone once occupied the islands. Had it been the Aztecs? They would not speak of Nebraska, only to call it an abomination. So far, their records provide no insight. They used an acid made from local plants to fight the chocklings that tried to gain a foothold in their lands, and they accepted refugees from the islands, but they themselves did not explore northward. Of those purported refugees, now some five hundred years integrated into Aztec culture, their stories are completely oral and have deteriorated over time. They tell legends and speak of terrible horrors, of bad luck and omens, and of nations slaughtered. 
but they give no details, and each story seems to contradict its fellows. Early North American explorers do say they happened across an occasional native on the isles. Indeed, many of the names of the islands and cities they bear come from such early reports. Once again, questions pile atop one another. Were these natives Aztecs or the remnants of some other culture? If some peoples had lived on the isles, as Aztec legends claim, what happened to the signs of their cities and towns? Some of the early settlers reported feeling an almost eerie emptiness to the isles, a haunted, troubling stillness. We can only conclude that there must be some truth to Aztec stories, that the peoples who lived here before us were driven southward, either that or destroyed by the wild chocklings, as we almost were. In this author's opinion, the Estevez report seems the most trustworthy and accurately dated of all the early European chalkling sightings, even if it is disturbing in concept. Joel slid the book closed, leaning his head back against the wall and rubbing his eyes with the fingers of one hand. He knew the Estevez report. He'd just read of it in another book. It spoke of a group of Spanish explorers searching for gold who had crossed into a strange narrow canyon on one of the southwestern isles, Bonneville or Zona Arida, or something like that. These explorers, led by Manuel Estevez, had found a group of small human-shaped pictures on the canyon walls, primitive figures, like one might find in caves left by long-ago inhabitants. The explorers had camped there for the night, enjoying the quiet stream and shelter from the winds. However, not long after sunset, they reported that the pictures on the walls began to dance and move. Estevez himself had described the drawings in great detail. Most importantly, he had insisted that the drawings weren't scratched or carved, but instead drawn in a whitish, chalky substance. He had even done drawings of the figures and put them in his log which survived to the present day. Joel, lad, Fitch said, you look exhausted. Joel blinked, looking up. Fitch sat at his desk, and from the dark circles under his eyes, Joel figured the man must feel at least twice as tired as Joel did. I'm all right, Joel said, battling a yawn. Fitch didn't look convinced. The two of them had spent the past week searching through tome after tome. Fitch mostly assigned Joel the historical books, as the high-level texts were simply beyond Joel's abilities. Joel intended to learn and to study until he could figure out those books. For the moment, it was better for him to focus on other subjects. Inspector Harding was pursuing the investigation to track down the kidnapper. That wasn't a job for Joel and Fitch. They were scholars. Or, well, Fitch was. Joel still wasn't certain what he himself was other than tired, of course. Anything of note in that book? Fitch asked, hopefully. Joel shook his head. It mostly talks about other reports and comments on their validity. It is a fairly easy read. I'll keep going and see if there's anything useful. Fitch was convinced that if there were other rhythmatic lines, there would be mentions of them in such records. Drawings, like Estevez had done, lost in time but now suddenly relevant. Hey, Joel said, noticing what Fitch was reading. Are those my notes about the census reports? Hem? Oh, yes. I never did get a chance to go over these. 
You probably don't need to worry about it now. I doubt those death records will be all that helpful. Oh, I don't know, Fitch said, leafing through the pages. Perhaps this isn't the first time events like the ones here have occurred. What if there were other such disappearances, but they were so isolated that they were never connected? We just— He trailed off, holding up one of the sheets. What? Joel asked. Did you find something? Um, oh no, I didn't. Fitch quickly put the sheet back down. I should get back to work on my other reading. Fitch, Joel decided, was a terrible liar. Probably came from the man's inability to stand confrontation of any type. So what had Fitch seen on that sheet that had caught his attention? And why didn't he want to mention it to Joel? Joel was trying to figure out a way to inconspicuously glance at the stack of sheets on Fitch's desk when the door at the end of the narrow chamber opened and Melody entered. Her class with Fitch had ended a half hour ago. Why had she returned? Melody? Fitch asked. Did you forget something? Hardly, she said, leaning against the doorway frame. I'm here on official business. Official? Fitch asked. Yeah, she said, holding up a slip of paper. Nalazar still has me running errands after classes, you know. By the way, I've realized that my sorry state is completely your fault, Joel. Mine? Sure, she said. If you hadn't gotten yourself into trouble visiting all those rhythmatic classes, then I wouldn't have had to end up running all over campus every afternoon like a wind-up toy. Here's your note, Professor. It says the principal wants Joel to come to the office. Me? Joel asked. Why? She shrugged. Something about your grades. Anyway, I have more menial, tedious, obnoxious, busy work to be about. See you at dinner? Joel nodded, and she took off. He walked over to take the note, which she'd stuffed between two books. Grades. He knew that he should have felt alarmed, but something as mundane as grades seemed distant to him at the moment. The note had been sealed shut, of course, but Joel could see where Melody had pried it open on the side to peek in. He walked over to grab his book bag. I'm going to go then. Hm? Fitch said, already absorbed in a book. Ah, yes, very well. I will see you tomorrow. Joel walked past the desk and quickly scanned what Fitch had been reading on his way out. It was one of the census lists of students who had graduated Armedius in a given year. Joel had marked the ones who had died suspiciously. There were two of these, but Joel didn't notice either name as being all that important. Why then? He almost missed it, just like last time. Exton's name was at the top of the list among the graduates from the general school that year. Was that what Fitch had noticed, or was it just a coincidence? Outside, Joel crossed the green, heading toward the office. Armedius had changed during the last seven days. The police were far more plentiful now, and they checked identification at the front gates and the spring rail station. Rhythmatic students weren't allowed off campus without an escort. He passed several nearby, grumbling that Armedius was starting to feel like a prison. He also passed a group of regular students playing soccer on the field. Their efforts seemed subdued, and there were far fewer of them than before. 
Most parents of ordinary students had pulled their children out of the academy for the summer, and they were being allowed to continue to do so. While non-rhythmatists had been killed now, it was clear that the rhythmatists were still the targets. Normal students should be safe off campus. There hadn't been another disappearance since Charles Calloway. A week had passed, and everyone just seemed to be waiting. When would it come? What would happen next? Who was safe and who wasn't? Joel hurried along, passing closer to the front gates. Outside them was one of the other big changes at the academy. Protesters. They carried signs. Give us the truth. Dusters are dangerous. Send them to Nebraska. Numerous editorialists around the aisles had decided that the deaths of the four Calloway servants had been the fault of the rhythmatists. These editorialists saw some sort of hidden war, some called it a conspiracy, between sects of rhythmatists. There were even those who thought that all of it, the existence of rhythmatists, the inception ceremony, the fight at Nebraska, was all a giant hoax used to keep the monarchical church in power. And so a small but very vocal group of anti-rhythmatist activists had set up a vigil outside the front of Armedius. Joel didn't know what to make of such nonsense. He did, however, know that several homes of rhythmatic students, all of whom were now staying full-time at the school, had been vandalized in the night. The soldiers at the gates, fortunately, kept most troublemakers away from Armedius. Most of them. Two nights ago, someone had tossed in a series of bricks painted with epithets. Joel didn't stop to listen to the protesters, but the sounds of their chanting followed him. We want the truth. Stop rhythmatist privilege. We want the truth. Joel hurried up the path to the office. Two rifle-bearing soldiers stood at the sides of the doorway, but they knew Joel and let him enter. Joel, Florence said. We didn't expect you to come so quickly. Despite the drab circumstances on the rest of the campus, the blonde clerk insisted on wearing a bright yellow summer dress complete with a wide-brimmed sun hat. Of course he came quickly, Exton said, not looking up from his work. Some people don't ignore their responsibilities. Stop being such a bore. Joel could see over the counter to a newspaper lying on Florence's desk. Crisis in New Britannia, the top headline read. The principal is seeing someone right now, Joel, Florence said. I'm sure he'll be done soon. How are things holding up here? Joel asked, glancing out the window toward the police officers. Oh, you know, Florence said, same as always. Exton snorted. You seem perfectly willing to gossip other times. Why be coy-faced now? Florence blushed. The truth is, Joel, Exton said, setting down his pen and looking up, things are not good. Even if you ignore those fools at the gates, even if you don't mind tripping over a police officer every other step, things are bad. Bad how? Joel asked. Florence sighed, folding her arms on her desk. The islands without rhythmatic schools are talking about starting their own. Joel shrugged. Would that be such a disaster? Well, for one thing, the quality of education would plummet. Joel, hun, Armidius isn't just a school. It's one of the few places where people from all across the aisles work together. Jamestown is different from most cities, Exton agreed. 
In most of the world you don't see Joshean people and Egyptians mixing. On many isles, if you're a foreigner, even an American from just a few isles over, you're considered an outsider. Can you imagine what will happen to the war effort in Nebraska if sixty different schools, each training rhythmatists in different ways, begin squabbling over who gets to defend what section of land? It's hard enough with eight schools. And then there's the talk of what these schools should be like, Florence said, eyeing her newspaper. It was from Mainford, one of the isles to the north. The editorials make rhythmatists sound like they aren't even really people. A lot of people are calling for the rhythmatists to be pulled out of ordinary classes and be trained only to fight at Nebraska, like they're nothing but bullets, to be wound up in a gun and then fired. Joel frowned, standing quietly beside the counter. From her desk, Florence tisked to herself and turned back to her work. Brought it on themselves, they did, Exton said from his place, speaking almost to himself. Who? Joel asked. The rhythmatists, Exton said. Being so exclusive and secretive, look how they treated you, Joel. Anyone they don't deem worthy enough to be on their level, they simply shove aside. Joel raised an eyebrow. He sensed some pretty strong bitterness in Exton's voice. Something having to do with his days as a student at Armidius, perhaps? Anyway, Exton continued, the way the rhythmatists treat others makes the common people, who pay for this place, begin to wonder if the rhythmatists really need such a fancy school and pensions for the rest of their lives. Joel tapped the counter with his index finger. Exton, he said, is it true that you went to Armidius? Exton stopped writing. Who told you that? I saw it, Joel said in the graduation records when I was working on a project for Professor Fitch. Exton sat quietly for a moment. Yes, he finally said. I was here. Exton, Florence said. You never told me. Why, how did your family manage to pay for your tuition? I don't want to talk about it, Exton said. Oh, come on, Florence said. Exton stopped writing, then stood up. He took his coat and bowler hat off their hooks on the wall. I'll take my break now, I think. With that, he left the building. Grouch, Florence called after him. A short time later, the door to the principal's office opened, and Inspector Harding walked out, blue suit pressed and neat as always. He picked up his rifle, which he'd left sitting outside the principal's office, then slung it over his shoulder. I will see about those patrols, Harding said to Principal York. We won't let something like the brick incident occur again, sir, I assure you. York nodded. Harding seemed to regard the principal with quite a bit of respect, perhaps because the principal looked like a battlefield general with his large frame and drooping mustache. I have the most up-to-date list for you, Inspector, Florence said, standing and handing him a sheet. Harding scanned it, face going slightly red. What is it? Principal York asked. Inspector Harding looked up. An oversight on my part, sir. There are still fourteen arithmetist students whose parents refuse to send them to the academy for protection. That is unacceptable. It's not your fault that parents are stubborn, Inspector, York said. 
I make it my responsibility, sir, Harding said. If you'll excuse me. He walked out of the room, nodding to Joel as he passed. Ah, Joel, Principal York said. Come in, son. Joel crossed into the principal's office and once again sat down in the chair before the overly large desk, feeling like a small animal looking up at a towering human master. You wanted to talk to me about my grades, sir? Joel asked as York sat down. Actually, no, York said. That was an excuse that you will forgive, I hope. He folded his arms before him on the desk. Things are happening on my campus, son. It's my job to keep an eye on them all as best I can. I need information from you. Sir, Joel said. With all due respect, I'm just a student. I don't know how much help I can be. I don't really like the idea of spying on Professor Fitch anyway. York chuckled. You're not spying, son. I had Fitch in here yesterday, and I just talked to Harding. I trust both men. What I really want is unbiased opinions. I need to know what is happening, and I can't be everywhere. I'd like you to tell me about the things you've seen and done while working with Fitch. And so, over the next hour, Joel did so. He talked about the census studies, his experience visiting the scene of Charles Calloway's disappearance, and the things he'd read. York listened. As the hour progressed, Joel found his respect for the principal growing. York did care, and he was willing to listen to the opinions and thoughts of a simple non-rhythmatic student. As Joel neared the end of his explanation, he tried to decide if he should mention his suspicions about Nalazar. He eyed the principal, who had gotten out his pen and had begun scribbling notes as Joel spoke. All right, York said, looking up. Thank you, Joel. This is precisely what I needed. You're welcome, sir, Joel said. But, well, there is one other thing. Yes? Sir, Joel said. I think Nalazar might have something to do with all of this. York leaned in. What makes you say that? Nothing really substantial, Joel said. Coincidences, really. Nalazar showing up when he did mixed with some of the things he'd done. Such as? Joel flushed, realizing how foolish he sounded. He was sitting in the principal's office, accusing one of the men York himself had hired. I... Joel said, his eyes dropping. I'm sorry, sir. I spoke out of turn. No, you didn't. I'm suspicious of Nalazar, too. Joel looked up with a start. I can't decide, York said, if it's simply my dislike of the man that is making me react this way, or if there is more. Nalazar has spent a lot of time in the office trying to find out more about the investigation. I keep asking myself if that's because he wants to know how much we know, or if he's just jealous. Jealous? York nodded. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Professor Fitch is gaining quite a bit of notoriety. The press got hold of his name, and now he's mentioned in nearly every article having to do with the disappearances. Apparently he's the Federal Inspector's secret weapon against the kidnappers. Wow, Joel said. Either way, York continued, I wish I'd never hired Nalazar. 
He has tenure, however, and firing him would be very difficult, and I really have no proof he is involved. So I ask again, what specifically makes you suspect him? Well, Joel said, do you remember what I told you about new rhythmatic lines? I saw Nalazar checking out a book from the library that was about new rhythmatic lines and their possible existence. Anything else? He left his building the other night, Joel said, the night Charles Calloway was kidnapped. I was out walking and saw him. York rubbed his chin. You're right, he said. That's hardly compelling evidence. Principal, Joel said, do you know why Nalazar is even here? I mean, if he's such a great hero at Nebraska, then why is he at a school teaching rather than fighting the wild chalklings? York studied Joel for a few seconds. Sir? Joel finally asked. I'm trying to decide if I should tell you or not, the principal said. To be honest, son, this is somewhat sensitive information. I can keep a secret? I don't doubt that, York said. It's still my responsibility to decide what I tell and what I don't. He tapped his fingers together. There was an incident at Nebraska. What kind of incident? The death of arithmetist, York said. Regardless of what many people here in the East claim, a death at Nebraska is always treated with solemnity by the war cabinet. In this case... There were lots of fingers pointed, and it was decided that some men, such as Nalazar, would be better off reassigned to non-active duty. So he killed someone? No, York said. He was involved in an incident where a young rhythmatist was killed by the wild chocklings. Nalazar was never implicated, and shouldn't have been, from what I read— when I interviewed him for his job here, Nalazar blamed political forces for trying to save their own hides from a blemish on their records. That sort of thing is common enough that I believed him. Still do, actually. But? But it's suspicious, York agreed. Tell me, what do these new lines you discovered look like? Can I have a pen? York loaned him one, then gave him a sheet of paper. Joel drew the swirling, looping pattern that had been discovered at all three crime scenes. Nobody knows what it is, but at least we know that it is rhythmic now. York rubbed his chin, holding up the paper. Hmm, yes. You know, it's strange, but this looks oddly familiar to me for some reason. Joel's heart skipped a beat. It does? York nodded. Probably nothing. Why would he have seen it, Joel thought. Principal York hasn't studied rhythmatics. What do the two of us have in common? Just the school. The school and... Joel looked up, eyes widening as he remembered, finally, where he'd seen that pattern before. Rhythmatics Diagram Line strengths. Lines of forbiddance have strength based on how straight the line is. Their stability is based on the material they are drawn upon, and the height their force wall extends depends on the width of the line. A straight line is stronger than a line that wobbles, 
a thick line will extend higher than a narrow one. Lines of warding have strength based on how even the line is and how sharp the curvature is. So a circle is equally strong all around, an ellipse has varying strength. A perfect circle will be stronger than a circle that wobbles. An ellipse will be stronger where it curves more than a circle, and be weaker where it curves less than one. Lines of vigor have strength based on how large the curve of their wave is. A line of vigor that has a short wavelength is stronger, but harder to draw, than a line of vigor that has a long wavelength. Lines of making have strength based on the complexity, creativity, and aesthetic beauty of the chalkling that is drawn. Increasing each of those will increase the chalkling's strength. Chapter 18 Joel left the office giving a rushed farewell to York and Florence. He didn't tell anyone what he'd just realized. He needed to confirm it for himself first. Joel took off down the path toward the dormitory building, moving at a brisk walk. He resisted running, with how tense the campus was that would probably draw more attention than he wanted. Unfortunately, he caught sight of Melody walking back down the path toward the office, her deliveries apparently finished. He winced, ducking to the side, but of course she saw him. Joel, she called. I've decided that I'm brilliant. I don't have much time right now he said as she rushed over to him. Blah, blah, she said. Look, I've got something exciting to tell you. Aren't you thrilled? Yeah, Joel said, starting down the pathway again. I'll talk to you about it later. Hey, Melody said, then pulled up beside him. Are you trying to ignore me again? Again, Joel said. I've never tried to ignore you. Yeah, right. Look, during those first weeks, weren't you mad at me because you thought I was stalking you? Past, gone, dead, she said. No, listen, this is really important. I think I found a way for you to become arithmetist. Joel nearly tripped over his own feet. Ha, Melody said. I figured that would get your attention. Did you say that just to get me to stop? Tusts, no. Joel, I told you I'm brilliant. Tell me about it as we walk, Joel said, moving again. There's something I need to check on. You're strange today, Joel, she said, catching up to him. I've just figured something out, he said, reaching the family dormitory building. Something that's been bugging me for a long time. He climbed the steps up to the second floor, Melody tagging along behind. I don't appreciate being treated like this, Joel, she said. Don't you realize I've spent days and days working on a way to pay you back for vouching for me in front of Harding? Now I come to tell you and you repay me by running about like a crazy man? I'm starting to take it personally. Joel stopped, then sighed, looking toward her. We've discovered new kinds of arithmetic lines at each of the crime scenes where students were kidnapped. Really? Yeah. One of them looked familiar to me. I couldn't remember why, but Principal York just said something that reminded me of where I'd seen it. So I'm going to make sure. Ah, she said. And once you're done with that, You'll be able to give proper attention to my stunning, brilliant, amazing announcement? Sure, Joel said. Fair enough, she said, tagging along as he continued down the hallway to the room he shared with his mother. He pushed inside, then went to the dresser beside the bed. Wow, Melody said, peeking into the room. You sleep here, eh? It's, uh, cozy. 
Joel pulled open the top drawer of the dresser, which was filled with knickknacks. He began to rummage in it. Where are the rest of your rooms? Across the hallway here? No, this is it, Joel said. Oh, where does your mother live? Here. You both live in this room? Melody asked. I use the bed during the nights. She uses it during the days. She's out today, though, visiting her parents. It's her day off. She takes precious few of those. Incredible. You know, this is way smaller than my dormitory room, and we all complain about how tiny they are. Joel found what he was looking for, pulling it out of the dresser. A key? Melody asked. Joel pushed past her, rushing to the stairwell. She trailed behind. What's the key for? We didn't always live in that room, Joel said, passing the first floor and continuing on to the basement. The door he wanted was at the bottom of the stairwell. So, Melody asked as he unlocked the door. He looked at her, then pushed the door open. We used to live here, he said, pointing toward the room beyond. His father's workshop. The large chamber was filled with shadowed shapes and a dusty scent. Joel walked in, surprised at how familiar the place felt. He hadn't stepped foot past that door in over seven years, yet he knew just where to find the wall lamp. He wound it, then twisted the gear at the bottom, making it begin to hum and shine out light. Illumination fell on a dusty room filled with old tables, stacks of limestone blocks, and an old kiln used for baking sticks of chalk. Joel walked reverently into the room, feeling his memories tingle and shake like taste buds encountering something both sour and sweet. I slept over there, he said, pointing to the far corner. A small bed stood there, and a couple of sheets hung from the ceiling, arranged so that they could be pulled to give him privacy. His parents' bed was in the other corner with similar hanging sheets. Between the two rooms was furniture, some chairs, chests of drawers. His father had always talked about building walls to split the shop into rooms. After he'd died, they hadn't been able to fit any of the furniture in the new room, so Joel's mother had just left it. Joel smiled faintly, remembering his father humming as he smoothed chalk at his table. Most of the chamber had been dedicated to the workshop. The cauldrons, the mixing pots, the kiln, the stacks of books about chalk composition and consistency. Wow, Melody said. It feels peaceful in here. Joel crossed the room, feet scraping the dusty floor. On one of the tables, he found a line of chalk sticks running the entire spectrum of colors. He slid a blue one off the table and rubbed the length of chalk between his fingers, the coating on the outside keeping his fingers from getting color on them. He walked over to the far side of the room, the one opposite the beds. There, hung on the wall, were chalk formulas detailing different levels of hardness. The chalk formulas were surrounded by pictures of the different rhythmic defenses. There were dozens of them, drawn by Joel's father, with notations along the sides explaining who had used them and during which duel. There were newspaper clippings about famous duels, as well as stories on famous duelists. Trent's voice drifted into Joel's head from memory, his father reading out loud about those duels, explaining to Joel with excitement about brilliant plays.
Remembering that enthusiasm brought back a menagerie of other memories. Joel pushed those aside for the moment, focusing on something else. For in the middle of all those formulas, defenses, and newspaper clippings was a particularly large sheet of paper. Drawn on it was the looping rhythmic pattern they'd found at each of the crime scenes. Joel breathed out slowly. What? Melody asked as she stepped up beside him. That's it, Joel said. The new rhythmic line. Wait, your father is the kidnapper? No, of course not. But he knew, Melody. He borrowed money. He took time off. He visited with rhythmatists at all eight schools. He was working on something. His passion. Melody glanced to the side, looking over the clippings and the pictures. So that's why, she whispered. Why what? Why you're so fascinated by arithmetics, she said. I asked you once. You never answered. It's because of your father. Joel stared at the wall with its patterns and defenses. His father would talk about them at length, telling Joel which defenses were good against which offensive structures. Other boys had played soccer with their fathers. Joel had drawn defenses with his. Father always wanted me to attend Armidius, Joel said. He wanted so badly for me to turn out to be arithmetist, though he never said anything. We drew together all the time. I think he became a chalkmaker so that he'd be able to work with arithmetists. And he'd done something wonderful. A new rhythmic line. It hadn't been discovered by men like Fitch or Nalazar, arithmetists with years of experience. It had been discovered by Joel's father, a simple chalkmaker. How? What did it mean? What did the line even do? So many questions. His father would have notes, wouldn't he? Joel would have to search them, tracking his father's studies during his last days, discover how this was related to the disappearances. For the moment, Joel reveled. You did it, father. You accomplished something none of them did. All right, Joel said, turning to Melody. What is your big news? Oh, she said. It's kind of hard to declare it properly now. I don't know. I just... Well, I've been doing some studying. Studying? Joel asked. You? I study, she said, hands on hips. Anyway, you shouldn't complain because it was about you. You studied about me? Now who's the stalker? Not about you personally, idiot. It was about what happened to you. Joel, your inception was handled wrong. You were supposed to go into the chamber of inception. I told you, Joel said. Father Stewart said I didn't need to. He, Melody said, raising a hand dramatically, was dead wrong. Your eternal soul could be in danger. You weren't incepted. The ceremony was botched. You need to do it again. Eight years later? Sure, Melody said. Why not? Look, the 4th of July is less than a week away. If we can convince the vicar that you are in peril of losing your soul, he might let you try again. The right way, this time. Joel considered that for a moment. You sure I can go through it again? Positive, Melody said. I can find you the references. 
I'm too old. But, well, King Gregory became one after he was eight, so maybe I could too. He smiled. That might actually be worth a try. I knew you'd appreciate it, Melody said. Tell me I'm a genius. You're a genius, Joel said, then glanced back at the pattern on the wall. Let's go get Fitch. I want him to see this. We'll worry about the vicar later. From what I can tell, Fitch said, sitting at a chair beside a table in the middle of the workshop, your father was convinced that there were other arithmetic lines. Here, look at this. Fitch pulled a page from the stack of books and old papers. Over the last few hours, Joel and Melody had helped him organize the workshop and sort through Joel's father's papers. The workshop almost seemed to be in use again. The paper fluttered as Fitch handed it over to Joel. It looked like some kind of legal document. That, Fitch said, is a contract of patronage. Valander Academy, Joel said. That's in the Californian archipelago, isn't it? One of the other schools that trains arithmetists? Fitch nodded. There are four of those sheets in here, each from one among the eight schools, including Armedius. They promise your father and his family patronage for a period of one hundred years, should he prove the existence of a arithmetic line beyond the original four. Patronage? Melody asked. Money, dear, Fitch said. A stipend, rather large. With such an income from four different schools, Joel's father would have become a very wealthy man. I must say I'm astounded at the level of your father's understanding of arithmetics. These writings are quite advanced. I should think the other professors would be very surprised to discover these things. I now realize that we never gave him the credit he deserved. He convinced someone, Joel said, pointing at the contract of patronage. Ah, yes, indeed it appears that he did. He must have worked hard and presented some very convincing evidence to get those contracts. From what I can see here, he researched with the various schools. He even went to Europe and Asia to meet with scholars and professors there. And in so doing, racked up quite a large number of debts, Joel thought, sitting down on the stool beside the work table turned desk that Fitch was using. But he found the line, Melody said, pointing at the drawing on the wall. So why didn't he get rich? He couldn't make it work, Fitch said, digging out a sheet of paper. Just as we haven't been able to. I draw that line exactly and it doesn't do anything. The kidnapper knows something we don't. So it's meaningless, Joel said. My father didn't know anything more than we do. He figured out that other lines existed. He even managed to draw a replica of one, but couldn't make it work. Well, Fitch said, sorting through the papers, there is one important point here, a theory from your father as to why the symbol didn't work. You see, there is a large group of scholars who believe that arithmetic line functions based on the arithmetist's goals in drawing it. They point to the fact that if we write words in chalk, or even doodle in chalk, nothing comes to life unless we are specifically attempting to do arithmetic drawing. None of the straight lines in the alphabet accidentally turn into lines of forbiddance, for example. 
Therefore, the arithmetist's desires affect what he draws. Not in a quantifiable way. For instance, arithmetist can't simply wish his lines of forbiddance to be stronger. However, if arithmetist doesn't intend to draw a line of forbiddance, the line simply won't work. So the reason you couldn't make the swirl pattern do anything, Joel said, was because I don't know what it's supposed to do, Fitch said. Your father believed that unless he could match the proper type of line with the knowledge of what it did, nothing would come of it. Fitch pulled out another sheet. Some laughed at him for that, I fear. I um, vaguely remember some of these incidents. At one point your father convinced some arithmetists to draw his lines. I wasn't involved and didn't pay much attention at the time, or I might have remembered his interest in new arithmetic lines earlier. But he wasn't able to make those lines do anything, even though he had a large number of possible intentions for them to try out. From his writings here, he saw that as a major defeat. There was a loud sigh from the floor where Melody lay, listening and staring up at the ceiling. She must have to launder her skirts daily, Joel thought, considering how much she likes to sit on the floor and climb trees and lie on the ground. Bored, dear? Fitch asked her. Only mildly, Melody said. Keep going. Then, however, she sighed again. Fitch raised an eyebrow toward Joel, who shrugged. Sometimes Melody just liked to remind everyone else that she was around. Regardless, Fitch said, this is a wonderful discovery. Even if it doesn't tell us what the line does? Yes, Fitch replied. Your father was meticulous. He gathered stacks of texts, some of them quite rare, and annotated them listing any that contained hints or theories about new rhythmatic lines. Why, it's almost like your father looked forward in time and saw just what we needed for this investigation. His notes will save us months. Joel nodded. I dare say, Fitch said almost to himself, we really should have taken Trent far more seriously. Yes, indeed. Why, the man was a closet genius— it's like discovering that your doorman is secretly a scholar of advanced springwork theory and has been building a working equilix in his spare time. Hmm. Joel ran his fingers across one of the volumes, imagining his father working in this very room, crafting his chalk, all the while thinking on rhythmatic wonders. Joel remembered sitting on the floor, looking up at the table and listening to his father hum. He remembered the smell of the kiln burning. His father baked some of his chalks while he dried others in the air, always searching for the ideal composition, durability, and brightness of lines. Melody sat up and brushed some curly red hair out of her eyes. You all right? she asked, watching him. Just thinking about my father. She sat there for a time, looking at him. So, she finally said, tomorrow is Saturday. And the day after that is Sunday. All right. You need to talk to the vicar, she explained. You have to get him to agree that you should be allowed to go through the inception. What's this? Fitch asked, looking up from a book. Joel's going to be incepted, Melody said. That wasn't done when he was eight? Fitch asked. Oh, it was, Melody said. They screwed it up. 
We're going to make them let him do it again. I doubt we can make them do anything, Melody, Joel said quickly. I don't even know if this is the right time to worry about that. The 4th of July is next week, Melody said. If you miss it, then you'll have to wait an entire year. Yes, well, Joel said, there are much bigger things to worry about right now. I can't believe this, Melody said, flopping back down. You spend your entire life mooning over arithmetics and arithmetists, and now you have your chance to become one, and you're just going to ignore it? It's not that good of a chance, Joel said. I mean, only one in a thousand get chosen anyway. Fitch was watching with interest. Now wait. Melody, dear, what exactly makes you think they'll let Joel try again? He didn't get to go into the chamber of inception, Melody said. So he couldn't... Well, you know. Ah, Fitch said. I see. I don't, Joel noted. It's not fair, Melody said, staring up at the ceiling. You've seen how good he is at arithmetics. He never even had a chance. He should get a chance. Um, Fitch said. Well, I'm no expert on church procedure. I think, however, you will have a difficult time convincing the vicar to let a sixteen-year-old young man to take part in an inception ceremony. We'll make it work, Melody said stubbornly, as if Joel didn't have a say in the matter at all. A shadow darkened the doorway. Joel turned to see his mother standing outside on the landing at the bottom of the stairwell. Oh, he said, noting her stunned look. Um, Mrs. Saxon, Fitch said, standing. Your son has made a wonderful discovery. She walked into the room, wearing her blue travel dress, her hair tied back. Joel watched her with trepidation. What would she think of them invading the chamber she'd locked up and left behind so long before? She smiled. It's been years, she said. I thought about coming back down, but I always worried that it would hurt too much. I worried it would remind me of him. She met Joel's eyes. It does remind me of him, but it doesn't hurt. I think... I think it's time to move back in here.